I want to welcome you to the second service this morning. Um, our pastor, Pastor Milton, is uh, still enjoying his vacation. He'll be back uh, the following week. He's in New York, actually, right now, uh, preaching at a church that he's ministered to before, and they're having a, a, a dedication to a ministry that they've begun, and he's there to celebrate that dedication, that ministry with them. So he's uh, in New York, uh, but he's missing all of you and wanted to greet you. Um, and he's looking forward to coming back very soon. Uh, it's my privilege to open up God's word again um, and continue the topic of living for God's kingdom. Um, and would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. I'm going to ask God's blessing uh, as we could begin. Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity just to come, to be gathered as your people, to celebrate your goodness and grace. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for, so much to come before you and into your presence to praise you for, Lord. We, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the fact that we are your children. And we can trust in you as we seek to live for your kingdom, Lord. Um, may the words that you have, have spoken to us, that Jesus uttered on, on that mount, on the hillside of Galilee, right, right before the sea to the crowds, that may, that may those words penetrate our hearts this morning, Lord, and may that cause us to live even more for your kingdom. Help us and guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue this topic of living for God's kingdom. And uh, we began this last week looking at verses 19 to 24. And Jesus showed us one thing in those verses that can keep us from living for his kingdom. He showed us that it is our selfish tendency to amass treasure for ourselves that, can, that can, has a very real potential to keep us, to hinder us from living for his kingdom. He showed us how that, that accumulating, that selfish accumulating of treasure really is a sinful building up of our own kingdom instead of joining his. And what Jesus invited us to do last week was to die to our own kingdom, to bury it, and to join him in pursuing in his kingdom, investing our treasure there, putting our heart there, seeing Jesus as our greatest treasure, and keeping our gaze there undivided, experiencing the fullness of what that kingdom living looks like and brings, and ultimately serving him as the king of that kingdom. And today, Jesus is going to show us yet another thing that can keep us from living for his kingdom. And that is the very real, the very real activity that we engage in, in not trusting God, in worrying, in being anxious over the things of this world, over the cares of this world, over the needs and necessities of life. Jesus is being very clear to us in these two sections of Matthew. He's saying, on the one hand, selfish living for one's own treasure will hinder you from living for God's kingdom. But on the same, on the same token, sinful worry about your needs, about your necessities, about the cares of life, what you need to live can also keep you from living for God's kingdom. And we see this in an amazing way in Matthew 13:22 as a description of one of the soils in which the seed of the gospel is planted. And Jesus in describing that person says this, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of, sorry, the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You see Jesus shows here that it's the cares of the world, the anxiety and worry and the being consumed with what we need to survive and to live with 
Um, and it's the very real deceitfulness of riches, the lie of, of treasure and living for our own kingdom that can choke out living for his kingdom. Jesus knows that all of us struggle to one degree or another with anxiety, with worry. And so does Time magazine. In fact, on June 10th, 2002, they published a, a cover story entitled Understanding Anxiety. And the subtitle of the article that they wrote was, Why do we worry ourselves sick? Because the brain is hardwired for fear and sometimes it short circuits. The unfortunate thing about this article was that the conclusion of the author was, uh, that the conclusion that he came to, or she came to actually, was that anxiety is really just a physiological problem. It's a biochemical problem. And there's no doubt that anxiety can affect our mind, it can affect our emotions, it can affect our lives in, in very real and in a multitude of ways. But anxiety, according to Jesus and the Bible, anxiety is really at the heart of it a very spiritual problem. In fact, the, the reality of anxiety is, and what it really is, is failing to trust God, who he is and what he's declared and promised to do. And Jesus knows that his disciples, that you and I, can struggle with Anxiety. In fact, he knows that many of us are willing to do what he called us to do last week. Many of us are willing to say, Lord, I, I will put down my kingdom. I will stop living for my kingdom. I'll begin to invest in your kingdom. I'll begin to be undivided in my focus on, on your kingdom. I will begin to uh, serve you and see you as the king of the kingdom and no longer put myself on that throne. But what about me, Lord? What about the things I need? What about the necessities that I need to live with? How will I pay for my kids' college? How will I retire? What about my mortgage? What about the stock market, the economy, the debt ceiling? What about all these other things, Lord, that go on that I need to worry about, that, that, that need, to, need to happen for me to live, for me to survive? And here's where Jesus begins in verse 25 to address all of that. He says, look, for the one who has invested in my kingdom, the one who is living for my kingdom, you can trust me to provide for you. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. If you're the one who is living for my kingdom, I tell you, do not be anxious. No longer be anxious. Stop being anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will wear, drink or about your body, what you will put on. Jesus here is very concerned about us and our anxiety and he's calling us to no longer be anxious, to trust him. In fact, four times in the passage, he uses the word anxious. In verse 25, do not be anxious. Verse 28, why are you anxious? Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious. In verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious. In fact, God doesn't want us anxious about anything. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything. But God here in this context is saying to us, Jesus is instructing us, don't worry about the things that you need in order to live for my kingdom. Pursue my kingdom, pursue my righteousness, and trust me to take care of what you need. Just be consumed with that, with my kingdom, my righteousness. And I promise you, I will supply all that you need in order to do that. Jesus is going to walk us through five truths this morning in these verses, in verses 25 to 34. He's going to walk us through five truths that will help us to do this. It will help us to no longer be caught up and paralyzed with anxiety and worry and fear, but instead begin to trust God to meet our needs as we go crazy living for him and his kingdom. And we're going to start with truth number one. 
And that is we can trust God for our needs as we live for his kingdom because we are precious to God. Our lives are precious to God. Notice what we find this. We find this in verse 26. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? See, Jesus begins an illustration. He's calling us to look. In fact, the Greek word there, look, is look intently so as to understand a truth or reality. I want you to look at the birds, and he begins to to use the, the, the animal kingdom, specifically birds, to show us, to demonstrate this reality that we are precious to him. He's going to take food and this illustration of birds, and then he's going to move on to clothing and the illustration of, of grass and flowers to, 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 to represent, uh, uses those two things to represent our necessities, everything that we need in this life. And he begins here, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. We begin to see that we're very precious to God in light of creation, in light of creation. You see, when we look at the creation account, we see that we as mankind are very, very different than the rest of God's creation. Notice what Jesus says, are you not more valuable than they? As Jesus begins to compare us to birds, he he wants us to see a very fundamental difference. In fact, when we look at Genesis 1 and the, and the creation account, we see this amazing difference. Jesus be, or God, God in Genesis 1 begins to walk us through the creation account. He talks about the creation of light and darkness, earth and sky, sea and vegetation, the sun, moon and stars, sea creatures and birds and land animals. And ultimately, he, he's working his way down to the, to the finale, the apex, the climax of his creation. That is man and woman, mankind. Notice what is said in Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. See, this text shows us that we are very unique in creation and that we were made in the image of God. The only part of God's creation that was made in His image What that means is that we were made like God, we were made to represent God, and we were made to be in a very intimate relationship with God. And as we look at Genesis 1, what we really realize is that all the other things that were created were created for our good in order to serve our purposes and to glorify God. Light, darkness, atmosphere, water, even the sun, moon, and stars which serve to give us time and season and to guide us. Sea creatures, birds, land animals, all that were we were to rule over, have dominion over, and even use for our survival. God has given us all these things, and he's given them to us as human beings. That means that we're very precious to him. The creation declares that fact. There's another reality or, or, or truth that Jesus is getting at in this comparison of birds. So, to, to, to man, he's saying, look, look at the birds. Understand that there's a very fundamental difference. I know many of us love animals, uh, and there are people on this planet that love animals probably way more than they even love mankind. Jesus is saying, look, when it comes to birds, they're precious to me too, but they don't compare to you. And look at them. Look at how I feed them. I'm faithful to millions of birds every day all over the planet. How much more will I not feed you? You're, aren't you not more valuable than they are? But there's another, there's another aspect to this to the fact that we're precious, another way we discover that, and that's in the text. Notice what he says again in verse 26. He says, 
It is your heavenly Father that feeds them. God, Jesus isn't saying, look at the birds and look at how their heavenly Father feeds them. No, he's saying, look at how your heavenly Father feeds them. You see, Jesus is showing us that we are very precious to him because we who have put our faith in Christ and are part of his kingdom are, have become his children. We are his children. He is our Father. I love 2 Corinthians 6.18. It's, it's, a, it's a passage from the Old Testament that Paul, that it was ascribed to Israel, but Paul takes it and now ascribes it to the church, to those who are in Christ. And just like it was true of Israel, it's true of us as well, where it says, I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. See, God has declared us his children. And that means we are very, very precious to him. Jesus knows about uh, that we understand this relationship between parent and child. And he alludes to that later on in Matthew 7. He says, look, you guys, if your son comes to you and he's asking for bread, you, you don't give him a stone. If he's asking for, for a fish, you don't give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God is saying, you can trust me to give to you. It's as if Jesus is saying, picture your father. He's standing next to you as, as, as a dad. And he's saying, look at the birds. Look at how I take care of them. Now, am I not going to take care of you, my child? And so we can trust the Lord as we busy ourselves living for his kingdom, pursuing his righteousness. We can trust him to provide for our needs because we are very, very precious to him. There's a second truth that will help us to trust the Lord as we live for his kingdom, and that's this, that our anxiety is powerless to produce anything. Our anxiety, our worry, being consumed, spending time and energy and fretting over the things that we need for this life and to live, all of that anxiety is powerless to produce anything. We see this in verse 27. Notice the text, it says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Now, this, this uh, admittedly is a tough verse and commentators sometimes are split on the way they take it. The word for span of life can also mean stature. So it can mean the span of your days. It can also mean the span of your height. And the word for single hour that's translated here in the SV, single hour, can also, it literally in the Greek, is the word for cubit. So it's the 18 inches between the top of the middle finger and the elbow, a unit of measure that, that was used in biblical times, both Old and New Testament. And I don't think Jesus here is saying, uh, and which of you, by being anxious, can add 18 inches to his height? Um, now, that, that's, that's, that would be, for, for all of us, that would be quite a big difference in height. That ruins, actually, his illustration. What he's really saying is this. What he's really saying is this. You can't, by your, all of your worrying and being anxious and all the time that you devote to that, you can't even add one hour to all the days that you will live. In the United States, right now, the average lifespan is 78.7 years. And that translates into 689,869 hours of life. Now, even if the people that Jesus was speaking to lived half that, that would be 344,934.5 years of life. What Jesus is saying is this. By all of your worry, all the time that you, you stress out and you're thinking about your 401k or your kid's college, whatever it is, your job, and if, if you're going to have it in a year, all these things. By all of that energy and, and that, that, that expenditure and investment of time and energy, you cannot add one hour 
So the 344,000 or the 689,000 hours that you're going to live. In fact, I like the way that John MacArthur, put, or, well, we'll get to that in a second. But here's the, here's the, you know, if you want it, here's the math of anxiety. Anxiety plus lifespan is always less than or equal to your lifespan. Okay? Anxiety plus lifespan is always less than or equal to your lifespan. And here's, uh, here's what John MacArthur says. He says, not only will you not lengthen your life by worrying, but you will probably shorten it. Charles Mayo, co-founder of the Mayo Clinic, made the observation that worry adversely affects the circulation, sorry, the circulatory system, the heart, the glands, and the entire nervous system. In the medical journal American Mercury, Mayo said he never knew anyone who died of overwork, but he knew many who died of worry. You can worry yourself to death, but you'll never worry yourself into a longer life. And Jesus is saying, you, your, your anxiety is powerless to produce anything. So stop, stop investing time there. Instead, trust me. Trust your Father to provide what you need as you go crazy, as you commit yourself to seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Proverbs 12.25 sums it up. Anxiety in, the man, in a man's heart weighs him down. You see, Jesus is saying, worry is a waste of your time and far from being productive at all, it is very, very destructive. And that's why we need to turn to our Father. Look to Him, to the One who is very powerful to provide for us. There's a third uh, truth that Jesus points us to that will help us to trust Him, to avoid anxiety as we seek to live for His kingdom. And that's this, that our best efforts to provide are pathetic compared to God's. Our best efforts at providing for our own needs are pathetic, are pitiful in comparison to God's. Notice where he describes this is in verses 28 to 30. And he says, And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field or the wildflowers of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little it's interesting to think about what those who were sitting there in the grass listening to Jesus as he preached the Sermon on the Mount what they would be looking at as they watched him and as they kind of looked around their, their surroundings uh, it may have been spring and in springtime in Galilee this is what you'll see there with the Sea of Galilee in the background you'll see the hillsides the, this kind of the slope up from the sea as it's kind of in a bowl and you'll just see wildflowers just, just scattered for miles and miles just covering the ground, just in beautiful, beautiful colors. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, he moves from the sphere of food and the illustration of birds, and now he moves to clothing and this illustration of grass and flowers. And he says, look, why are you worried about your clothes? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider this. Look at the wildflowers of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Jesus is saying that he takes flowers, beautiful, amazing flowers, and he, he crafts them, he, he intricately weaves the details into them and the beauty into them, and then he scatters them in countless number all over the hillside. And he clothes the grass with these flowers. Grass that is here today, but tomorrow it's harvested, it's dried out, and it's thrown into an oven or into a furnace used for fuel. Jesus is saying, 
I, I clothe something like grass, which is so temporary, so here to now and gone tomorrow, with these amazing flowers. How will I not clothe you? How will I not clothe you? You know, the, the, in, in the scriptures, <clears throat> the grass is, is very, it's is, is, is just here for a short time. It says in James 1.11, For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes. And Jesus says, even though it's so temporary, I do an amazing, amazing job at this. In fact, Solomon had nothing on me. Now, you look at these flowers and then you compare it to something like this. This is one of the world's most expensive suits. It's a bespoke suit. And I don't know how many of you know what a bespoke suit is, but it, instead of just taking a suit that's made, uh, manufactured, and then it's tailored to you, a bespoke suit is actually made from scratch for one person. So they take probably, you know, anywhere between 60 and 30 measurements of you, and then they, they go and get the best fabrics, and they build the suit for you. That's what a bespoke suit is. And it, this bespoke suit, in particular here, is made of cashmere wool, silk, and 500 diamonds that weigh in at 240 carats. It took 600 hours to construct and was made by Stuart Hughes, a 39-year-old designer from Liverpool, England. And it is valued at 599,000 pounds, British pounds. At the conversion rate of today, that's just under $1 million. And what Jesus is saying is, this suit ain't got nothing on my flowers. In fact, when we think of Solomon, it was said of him in First King, Kings chapter 10 that he brought in every year, just, just his gold intake every year was 666 talents. That's 50,000 pounds of gold a year that Solomon brought in to his kingdom. Every year. That's 800,000 ounces of gold. And at today's market value, that's like 1.3, 1.2 billion dollars of gold. Now, Solomon could have bought the suit and I have no doubt that he had probably 10 or 12 man dresses that looked amazing. <laughs> Layered with gold and purple and all sorts of things and just dazzling where he came out and people were like, whoa! And Jesus is saying here, that you may think that's great, but I'm telling you, the way I can dress grass with flowers is, will blow anything that Solomon had. You see, what Jesus is really telling us is this. We... Here's what, here's what Jesus is saying about God. God does a better job of dressing a field of grass and flowers than the richest man in the world did clothing himself. What he's trying to teach us is this, that we are unable, we are unable to match God in his ability to provide for us. Even if we have all the resources in the world, we can't do a good, as good a job as God can in meeting our needs and providing for us. Now, not all of us are going to be as rich as Solomon. In fact, Jesus has called many of us to a life that is limited, that is... That is, that, is, uh, that is content with little and won't experience as much as he experienced. <laughs> like Brian. So, but what, what, we can, <clears throat> what we can see is that God will be faithful. God will be faithful to provide. In fact, he does a way better job than we could ever do. And he knows exactly what we need. And so he's to be trusted. He's to be trusted. Notice what Jesus says at the end of this verse. He says, Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. Will God, your Father, not much more clothe you, oh, you of little faith? And what that little faith means is, <clears throat> it doesn't mean no faith. It means just such small faith, such inadequate, insufficient faith. In fact, when we think about faith, faith should be proportionate to the object that we place our faith in. You see, the size of our faith should have nothing to do with us, but everything to do 
with the one into whom we trust. And because our God is great and because he does amazing and great things, then our faith in him should be just as great. Jesus is saying, trust your father. He can do way better than you ever could. Even Solomon could in providing for you. Well, there's a fourth truth that will help us to trust to trust God to provide for our needs as we seek to live out and to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. And that's this. Our purpose on this earth is more profound than our needs. Our purpose on this earth is more profound than our needs. We were made to live for more than just the accumulating and acquiring of needs and the pursuing of needs, the, the, the being consumed with getting our needs met. Our life is bigger than that. And we see this in verses 31 to 33. Notice what Jesus says. He says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom, the kingdom of God, and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's fascinating what Jesus is doing here. You see, in the first prohibition, in the first command that he gave in verse 25, he used the present active imperative. Stop being anxious. Don't be anxious. I know that you are anxious right now, that you're, you're tempted to be anxious uh, from time to time. Stop doing that. But here he changes to the aorist, the aorist subjunctive, and what he's doing is he's basically saying this. No longer be anxious. From this day forward, don't even start ever again to be anxious. In fact, what Jesus is really saying is he's saying, don't let your life any longer be characterized by worry and anxiety. Live a life from this day forward because of what I'm telling you, because of the things you're learning and and hearing from me, these truths that I'm giving to you. No longer allow yourself to become anxious, worried, or fret over the things that you need to live. And he says that because he's pointing to those who, this is their lifestyle, this is their habit. The Gentile, the pagan, the unbeliever. The one who does not know Christ, does not know the Father, and thus is not part of his kingdom. He says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You see, the reason the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things is because there is no heavenly Father for them. There's nobody there to provide for them in their mind. And so, if they are to survive, if they are to to make it, to live another day, to pay the mortgage, to do whatever, they need to exert themselves and depend upon him, I'm sorry, upon themselves alone to get it done. Now, don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying we don't exert ourselves either. But ultimately, we exert ourselves knowing that we have a Father who knows all our needs and will provide. And will even provide through the exerting that we, that we do. But the Gentile is very different. His lifestyle is characterized by worry. It's no, it's no wonder that so much of the world is, experiences anxiety and stress and, and worry. It's because they have no father. They have no one to look to. They don't believe in a God, and so they are their own God. And they must act if they're going to live and survive. And Jesus says, no longer let this be the way that you live. No longer let this be what characterizes your life. No longer ask these things, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink and what am I going to wear? Trust that God will provide these things. You see, what the Gentiles ultimately do is that they make the means of life 
the end that they live for. See, food and clothing and the things that we need are to serve as a means in order to pursue God in his kingdom, in order to pursue his righteousness. But what the Gentiles do, what unbelievers do, and often what we even find ourselves doing, is that we are so consumed and busy about the getting and acquiring of those needs and, and surviving that that is what life becomes to us. And that is what the world is doing. You see, Jesus is saying, you were created for so much more than that. The purpose on this earth of your life is so much more profound than your needs. Like what Paul Tripp says, he says, I was, not, I was not created to shrink the size of my life to the size of my needs. There is something incredibly dehumanizing about living this way. If true humanity is bound up in community with God and godly community with others, I will never experience it when all my eyes ever see is my own need. You see, we're not even fully human when we're only living for our need. God says, this is just the means to get to where you really are going to experience humanity. You experience life, and that's living for my kingdom and my righteousness. If you're not doing that, you're not even living. You're not even fully human and experiencing full humanity. Paul Tripp goes on to make another observation. He says, the more I focus on my needs, the more things in this life get loaded into that category. The more I live with the meeting of my needs as my central focus of concern, the more things in my life get defined as needs. The more things in my life get defined as needs. You see, the Gentiles, they just, the unbeliever just focuses so much on his needs that ultimately everything becomes a need. And this is where the rubber meets the road for many of us because it's really a matter of what we think we need versus what God knows that we need. See, Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows what you need. He knows you need these things, but he knows exactly what you need and what you don't need, what he's going to give you and what would be best to give you and what he would be best to withhold. And often those two things are not the same. Our list of what we think is needs, and because we're so needs consumed, many of the things in our life become needs. And Jesus is saying, you need to trust God to determine what you need. He knows ultimately, truly, what would be best for you and what you really need. Instead of living this way, Jesus is saying, stop living this kind of lifestyle. Instead, here's what I'm calling you to. Here's what I want you to be doing. Seeking first the kingdom of God. He says this in verse 33. This is the heart of our passage. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Jesus is saying, seek this first. And what he means by first is he means above all else. Make this your highest priority in life to live for my kingdom and to live for my righteousness, to seek these things out. Now, the, the, the word for seek has two ideas behind it that I want us to, to just grab hold of. On one side, there is this pursuing, this going after, this living in, experiencing. So we're to experience, we're to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. At the same time, we're to long for these things. Ultimately, in their final form, when Jesus comes again, we're to long for his kingdom and we're to long for his righteousness. And I want to take each one of those, his kingdom and his righteousness, and look at each one so that we're clear about what exactly Jesus wants us to be doing. Well, the first thing is he wants us to be seeking his kingdom, God's kingdom. And he says, pursue God's kingdom. And I think a place that we can understand what this really means is in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray just a few verses earlier in chapter 6. He says there that we are to desire God's name to be glorified or hallowed, to be sanctified, lifted up by men and in our own lives, that we're to live for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done. You see, we can divide, or we can understand pursuing God's kingdom as living for God's glory, 
It's also living under his authority, his rulership, where he is the king of our lives and living inside of his will, doing anything and everything that he calls us to, no matter what it is. This is what it means to pursue God's kingdom. And we're to pursue it in our own lives, in the lives of those around us. Now, the question is going to come up, okay, Carlos, if God's kingdom is the most important thing that I need to be pursuing, that's where I need to put my time and attention and resources and everything to doing that, then why do I need to go to work or pay my bills? Why do I need to change diapers or do the laundry? Why do I need to go to school or even get a degree? And what we need to do is understand what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that living for his kingdom and his righteousness is done outside of ordinary life. He's not saying, go quit your job so you can live for my kingdom. Go abandon your family so you can live for my kingdom. Go halfway around the world in order for you to be living for my kingdom. No, Jesus says this. He says, you live for my kingdom inside of every moment of ordinary life. It's in everything that you do and every situation that you find yourself that there are opportunity, that there, there's opportunities to live for his kingdom, to, to pursue his glory, to be underneath his authority and to be living out and inside of his will. You see, we're to do this in our marriages, in our parenting, in our homes, with our relatives, in our church, in, in, our, in our jobs, in school and in our community. Jesus is saying, look, when you go to work, go there for my glory. When, when see, see your marriage and your parenting as under my authority and rulership. When, when you are at, in the church and when you're in your community, live in such a way that you're within my will, doing the things I've called you to do. See, this is where kingdom living happens. It happens in the, every, in the everyday moments of life. It's seeking the eternal inside of the ordinary. It's seeking that eternal, these eternal realities and these eternal truths inside of ordinary, everyday life. Far from just calling us to a life where we don't work or don't do anything, just saying, labor, work, strive, do all these things, but do them for the kingdom. Do them for me. Do them for my glory, under my authority and inside of my will. That's what it means to pursue God's kingdom. There's another aspect to seeking God's kingdom and that is longing for it. Not only are we to pursue it, but we're to long for it. Brothers and sisters, we're to long for the day that Jesus brings his kingdom to this earth where Jesus appears again and comes down and reigns over the entire earth. And he will do that soon. And we're to long for that day. I think a lot of us long for that day, maybe like an hour or two before we die, but we still have a lot to do in this life. And Jesus is saying, no, you not only need to pursue my kingdom, living for my glory, under my authority, for my will, but you need to be longing for this kingdom to come down in its final form, where Jesus will reign. In fact, we see that in that same prayer, in the, in the disciples' prayer. Lord, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on this earth as it is being done in the heavens right now. And that's what we're all to long for. That's part of seeking God's kingdom. There's another thing that we're to be seeking, not just his kingdom, but his righteousness. We're both to be pursuing it and longing for it. And in pursuing it, the idea is that we pursue living out the righteousness that we have. See, Jesus is saying, go pursue the righteousness that, that you need to get into heaven. The Sermon on the Mount, it makes it very clear. It speaks a lot about righteousness. You will not get into the kingdom unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You better be righteous or you're not in the kingdom. But what Jesus is saying is you don't somehow find that righteousness. It is a gift from God. It comes as you are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What we're to be pursuing here is very different. It's the living out of that righteousness that we are already clothed with. We are 
inside of Christ's righteousness. We're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Now, Jesus is saying, make your life about pursuing that, about living it out, about making it a reality in everyday life. In your marriage, in your parenting, at your job, let Christ's righteousness be expressed by your life, by what you say, what you do. Jesus is calling us, in a sense, to live as citizens of the kingdom, as those who belong and are sons of the king. In Colossians 1.13, Jesus says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. We're part of that kingdom. We are righteous now. We are, we are to live that reality out and pursue living that kind of righteousness. Not only are we to pursue that kind of righteousness, but we're also to long for it. To long for it. In Second Peter 3, verse 13, it says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, we've been given a promise that a new heavens and a new earth is coming and that new heavens and new earth, God's kingdom is described as a place where righteousness dwells. And we're to long for that, both now and in that day when Jesus comes back and brings that and makes that a reality. We're to long for it now and that we want mercy and justice and truth to prevail. We want righteousness to go forth, not just in our own hearts, but even around us in our community, in our homes, and, and, and in the country that we live in. And we long for that righteousness to, 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 to happen, to be realized, ultimately, when Jesus comes. This is what it means. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, seek my kingdom and my righteousness. Pursue these two things. Long for these two things. Make them the greatest thing that characterizes the pursuit of your life. No longer live like the unbeliever who's just consumed with with the here and now. You've been, your life has a greater purpose and the purpose of your life is more profound than just your needs. You see, in a sense, Jesus has moved from literal food and literal clothing and he's saying, what your real food is, is to live for the kingdom. And what your real clothing is, is to be clothed with my righteousness. That's what Jesus is saying. He's moved away, away from the literal stuff. He's saying, this is what it really means. Jesus, we have, we have that from Jesus in John 4.34. He says, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Yes, Jesus needed to eat. He was human. So do we. But God says, I will provide for that. Make your food pursuing my kingdom. And in the same way, Galatians 3.27 says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, immersed into his righteousness, have been clothed or literally have put on Christ. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. See, the greatest clothing that we're to pursue is being clothed and enveloped and characterizing the life of Christ, to be Christ-like. Jesus says, pursue that as your clothing above all else. And let me worry about putting threads on you and making sure that you have your needs met. Well, there's a final, there's a final truth. It's truth number five. Our lives are subject to God's sovereign plan. We can trust God to meet our needs because our lives are subject to God's sovereign plan. He says in verse 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, Jesus knows that most of our anxiety is over things about the future. Will I have my job for another year? How will my 401k fare? Will I be able to retire? What about my health? Will I have that? All these uncertainties, all these questions, all this panic and worry and anxiety over the future. 
What Jesus is saying is, let tomorrow worry about itself. Trust me for tomorrow. You see, we worry today about tomorrow. But Jesus will provide for tomorrow when it becomes today. And ultimately what Jesus is calling us to remember is, you don't even know if you're going to have a tomorrow. Often the things that we worry about, they never materialize, they never happen. And a lot of times we're assuming that this tomorrow that's coming will come. But Jesus is saying, look, what I want you to do and understand is this. You just need to live for my kingdom and pursue my righteousness from day to day. If I've given you today and it is today, then live for my kingdom and my righteousness today. And don't worry about tomorrow. And when today, when tomorrow becomes today, then do it again. And if you get another 24 hours, then do it again. Go crazy living for my kingdom and my righteousness and let that be what you do from day to day to day. Jesus says, each day, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Each day has enough challenges and of trials and trouble of its own. And in, in saying that, Jesus is saying this, don't think that I'm giving you or I'm guaranteeing or promising a trouble-free life. I'm not doing that at all. In fact, you will have trouble. But a trouble-free life doesn't have to equal a worry, a worry-filled life. In fact, you can be worry-free, even though you may not be trouble-free. This is what Jesus is telling us in these verses. He's giving us these five truths. Our lives are precious to God. Our anxiety is powerless to produce anything. Our best efforts to provide are pathetic compared to God's. Our purpose on this earth is way more profound than the meeting of our needs. And our lives are subject ultimately to the God's sovereign plan. I want to conclude with the life of one individual, and that's George Mueller. He lived from 1805 to 1898. And George Mueller, among other things that he did, he did amazing things in his life. Uh, but he spent about 40 years overseeing an orphanage ministry that began with just 30 girls in his own home with his wife, he and his wife, caring for them. But it ultimately blossomed into a ministry which, in which he touched the lives of over 10,000 orphans. And what's amazing about George Mueller is that uh, just the intensity with which he pursued living for the kingdom and trusting that God would provide for his needs. It's, even at the age of 70, after having served so faithfully in this in this ministry and having orchestrated and, and overseen, having overseen other ministries. At the age of 70, he turned his attention to traveling in order to preach the gospel and evangelize uh, all over the world. He traveled, this is pre-aviation, he traveled 200,000 miles over land and sea, preached in 42 countries over 17 years of his life. In the course of his ministry, he received 1.5 million British pounds from donations and other things, even though he never solicited funds ever. He, he had a personal conviction that he would never no, let anybody know his needs except for God alone. And at present day value, that would be 75 million British pounds. That's like almost a billion dollars. That's, that's very, people think that that's, that's not, that, that can't be true, but he kept meticulous records for his donors of every penny that was given. And even though he received a personal income from unsolicited gifts that rose to the amount of 2,000 pounds a year, he only kept 300 pounds for himself, his wife, and his children, and he would give the rest of it away. This is a man who went crazy for God's kingdom. He, 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 he determined that he would invest his treasure there, that he, would, that he would keep his eyes undivided and focused on the Lord, that he would make the Lord Jesus his king and his master, that he would serve him. And this is a man who ultimately felt so free to pursue God's kingdom because he knew that he had a heavenly father that would totally provide every single need and he never mentioned any of those needs except to his father and Jesus 
is showing us through this life, uh, this man, George Mueller, what we can do. We can trust our Father to provide for us everything that we need. Yes, we need to strive. Yes, we need to labor. No, Jesus is not promising us a worry for your life. But he is making this promise. If I have given you another day to live for my kingdom and my righteousness, I will give you what you need in order to do that. Just go do that. Enjoy doing that. Well, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward as we pray. Let's, let's, let's pray that our lives would be characterized the way that Jesus has shown us here. Father, we give you thanks for the, the very words that Jesus spoke many years ago to that crowd gathered on the hills of Galilee. Lord, I pray that the words that our Savior has spoken to us would ring true, that we would find in them hope and encouragement to trust in you, our Father. Lord, we are precious to you. You are providing for us. You have promised to provide everything we need so that we can be freed up to live for your kingdom and pursue living for your righteousness. Lord, help us to do that. Help us not to be weighed down with the cares of this world. Let not those cares choke out our desire to serve you, to live for you. But help us to live for you as long as it is today and as long as you give us life to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.